Oh, I hope you had a Merry Christmas. We did too. We've never been so excited for one of our children to only have the flu at Christmas instead of COVID, which we were sure it was. But it's not. It's just the flu. Praise God. Um, Matthew chapter 2. We are, if you're visiting with us, we are working our way through the Gospel of Matthew um, over the next two or three years. And we just got started. I'm so excited. I hope you are too. Um, Matthew chapter 2 is where we are. Funny how that worked out. We're going to be in verses 1 through 12 this morning. So uh, just a quick, quick summary. Um, as we've started through Matthew, uh, Matthew has been very keen on establishing Jesus' identity and Jesus' purpose. That's what he's doing from the very beginning. Hi, Ken. I don't need it anymore. Oh, man. Kind of neat. Okay. All right. Well, maybe some other time. I'll get to hold the microphone. So he started with an ancestry. And he's showing us um, that Jesus, by virtue of his identity and purpose through his ancestry, would confound the world in his ministry and what he was going to accomplish, right? So if you look through the ancestry, you see women mentioned in the ancestry in the genealogy, which is not normal at all to mention that in a genealogy. There are Gentiles in Jesus' genealogy. Jesus has Gentile blood in his bloodline. There are sinners in Jesus' genealogy, even though he is God incarnate and is perfect. There are sinners in his genealogy. The human genealogy of the creator of the universe isn't an ancestry line full of highly moral or socially acceptable people. And that gives us great hope because we are not highly moral, socially acceptable people in the sight of God. We're not. So Jesus, is his ministry and his identity, it's going to confound the world. And, and, and that Matthew is very keen on demonstrating that for us. Then he gives us the story about how Jesus got his name. Joseph didn't name him. Mary didn't name him. God named him. God has authority over Jesus, not Joseph, not Mary. So he has established Jesus' name. And in his name, we hear his identity and his purpose. His, his identity is Yeshua, which is a Hellenized Jewish name. Joshua would be the Jewish version. Jesus is the Hellenized version of that name. So there's a Gentile component to his name. And, his na- and the name means Jesus will save he, he will save people from their sins. He will save them from their sins. Not just Jews, not only Gentiles, but Jews and Gentiles alike. He will save them from their sins. We have his identity and his purpose and his name. So now, in chapter 2, uh, Matthew is going to elaborate more on this identity and purpose by sharing this story of magi, of wise men from the east. So let's stand together and read Matthew 2, 1 through 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. And when King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Christ would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. 
Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time that the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. And after hearing the king, they went on their way, and there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. This is the word of the Lord. You may be be seated. So I want to just, again, we have so many things, so many things uh, to, to unravel and pull apart. And we could go down so many rabbit trails. But today I want to just show you three things that Matthew, I think, is trying to communicate about Jesus in this passage. Uh, The first thing that Matthew, I think, is trying to say that I want to pull out of the text to you is that Jesus is a different kind of king. He's a different kind of king. Look in verses 1 through 4 at the way Matthew contrasts Jesus with Herod. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, In the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star. And then verse 3, When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, as all Jerusalem was. Interesting. Come to that later, maybe. He assembled all the priests and scribes and asked them where the underline the word Messiah here. So you have now the word Messiah that's being paralleled with king of the Jews. And it's being contrasted with King Herod. So in verse 2, you've got King Herod contrasted with King of the Jews. And in verse 3, you've got King Herod contrasted with Messiah. So you see the, see the differences there that Matthew's doing. So we've got to remember that as far as anybody else was concerned in Jesus' day, Herod was king of the Jews. But in verse 3, you've got King Herod contrasted with Messiah. But as far as anybody else was concerned, the king of the Jews was King Herod because Herod was the king and he was king of anybody who was there. And that included the Jewish people. And he had been for 30 years. Herod built seven palaces in Palestine. And every one of them were bigger than Caesar's, any that he had in Rome. Herod was king. Herod built more amphitheaters hippodromes, shrines, fortifications, aqueducts, forums, roads, whole cities, fountains, and he is the one who rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem for the Jews. Herod was king. And everybody knew that he was king, but nobody called him Messiah. Messiah means the long-awaited God-anointed ruler who would overcome all other kings who ruled. He would, the Messiah is the one who would bring an end to all of history. And the Messiah is the one who would establish the kingdom of God and never die and never lose his reign. That's the Messiah. 
So we don't know how the wise men got their information that there was such a king coming, but it's very clear in verse 4 that Herod knew exactly who this was. Did you notice that? So Herod heard this. He was deeply disturbed. Herod knew about some aspects of the Jewish Messiah. So he's the one who called in the experts and the scribes and the chief priests and the people, and he asked them, this king of the Jews that they're asking about, I know that's the Messiah. When will the Messiah be born? He knows he's not just looking for a mere ordinary human successor. He is knows that he is searching now for a final king, the king to end all kings. And that's what Herod wanted to find. He didn't even know the simple scriptures about where the Messiah was to be born. He just knew enough that that's what the Messiah was. And if you look in your text, they point him to Micah 5. That verse 6 in Matthew 2 is Micah 5, 2. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So Herod is not, um, that's the best way to say this. Herod is not interested in Jewish literature. That's not his interest. They didn't say that to him because, oh, you know, Herod, you're going to love this. Remember what we studied in Micah chapter 5? This is how this applies. It's not what's going on here. Uh, Herod is not curious just where this king will be born. He is concerned with who it is, that he is Messiah. Herod knows deep down that he may appear to be the king of the Jews. He himself may appear to be the king of the Jews, but he's not the one that's been promised long. And so the reason he wants to know where is because he really wants to understand who. Herod knew that Jesus was going to be a different kind of king. He knew. That's why he asked. In his book, The Jesus Way, Eugene Peterson is the author of that book. He has this wonderful way of of contrasting and comparing the way of Herod with the way of Jesus. And I want to read a paragraph or two to you here. Herod, says Peterson, working against formidable odds in his 34-year reign, had done the kingdom thing magnificently. His skilled brokering of power, his shrewd acquisition of immense wealth, his use of Greek theater and athletic contests to shape people's thinking and values, his architectural splendor giving everyone a sense that their king was all-powerful and majestic. He had gathered a diverse population of Jews and Romans and pagans and Greeks, feuding sects and uncongenial political parties, and he'd hammered out a unity among them. Herod was the accomplished master at fashioning a kingdom, thinking big and working out the concrete details that would bring it to reality and everyone in it. That's the kind of king that Herod was. And Herod also knew that Jesus would be a different kind of king. He would be a Messiah, not that kind of king. And Eugene Peterson explains it this way. He says, Jesus spent his life walking down roads and through towns that were dominated by Herod's policies. He walked through buildings shaped by Herod's power, communities that existed at the mercy of Herod's whims, And Jesus never gave them the time of day. He lived as if Herod never existed. There is only one recorded reference of Jesus mentioning Herod. And there he is brushing Herod off as a fox or somebody who may not even. He's just a non-entity. Jesus ignored, catch this. Jesus ignored the world of power and accomplishment that was brilliantly on display all around him. 
Jesus chose to work on the margins of society with unimportant people, giving particular attention to the weak, the disturbed, and the powerless. That's a different kind of king. That's a completely different kind of king. It's a king who's not interested in running a political party or running a nation as a politician. It's somebody who spends his time out on the margins with the disturbed, with the weak, and with the poor. That was King Jesus, the King of the Jews, the true Messiah. And that's why these wise men, the Magi, by the way, how many were there? Doesn't say. Doesn't say, right? Um, these, but they are Magi. They are wise men. They are the intellectual elitist of the day. They are the Harvard professors, the Harvard, 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 Harvard professors. They are the intellectuals. They traveled all this way to worship Jesus, and they don't bow to Herod. That's incredible. Which tells us a second thing about Jesus. Not just that he's a different kind of king, but that he is everybody's king. Matthew does not tell us about the shepherds coming to visit Jesus in the stable. He skips over that part, goes forward several months or even a couple of years, and he immediately focuses on foreigners coming from the east to worship a baby, a, a toddler at best. So I mentioned this in the first sermon in the series, and here it is again. Matthew is going to do this over and over and over again. He's going to portray Jesus as a Messiah, not just for the Jews, although he's certainly king of the Jews, but also the Messiah for all people, the Gentiles, for all nations. It's in his ancestry, it's in his name. And here, the first worshipers, the first worshipers in Matthew's Gospels are astrologers, which again was the science of the time. These are elite, wise, intellectual men who are not from Israel, but are from the east, maybe even Babylon. Babylon, Old Testament Babylon, coming here, unclean to worship Jesus. And at the end of Matthew's gospel, the very last words of Jesus are, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples where? Of all nations. That's only in Matthew. So this not only opened the door for us Gentiles to rejoice in the Messiah, it adds proof that Jesus was the Messiah for all people. So Matthew adds this proof to, to, at the, at the, um, of the Messiahship of Jesus, who is a Messiah for the Jews, to show that he's not just for the Jews, but he's also for the Gentiles. He is the king of all people. He's everybody's king. And lastly, A short Christmas sermon where I can't hold the microphone. He is a disruptive king. If you'll notice in the text, there are two kinds of people who do not want to worship Jesus. The first kind are the people who simply just do nothing about him. Jesus is a non-entity in their lives. And if you look in the text... The people who do nothing about Jesus are extremely religious Jewish people. The chief priests and the scribes. These are people who knew their scriptures. They knew a Messiah would come. They knew where he would be born. They knew why he would come. And in this story, 
learned men from the east come inquiring about the place because they've been given a sign in the stars. And they come and they bow and they worship. And the priests and the scribes who know the answer do not care to live the answer. They know everything there is to know about a Messiah, but they don't follow the wise men to see if it's come true. That's terrifying to me. That you could be so informed, so culturally ingrained in the truth of Scripture and not care about its reality in your life. Isn't that terrifying? The second kind of people who don't want to worship Jesus in this passage is the kind who feels deeply threatened by him. And that's clearly Herod. Herod is afraid. In fact, all of Jerusalem is... Did you notice that in the text? What verse was that? Verse 3? 4? All Jerusalem with him. There's no version of a Messiah, king of the Jews, coming into the life of Jerusalem, and it's going to go peacefully. And they all know this. Oh, trouble is brewing. It's going to be disruptive. With Herod, at least, right, at least there's, we know what we're dealing with. Better the devil you know than the God you don't. But Herod's afraid. So much so that he will scheme and lie, and then as we'll see next week, he'll commit mass murder just to get rid of the threat. So today... These two kinds of oppositions also come against Jesus and his worshipers. Indifference and hostility. Indifference and hostility. And the question that I'm asking myself this morning is, am I indifferent or hostile to Jesus? I'm certainly not hostile. I'm standing here preaching for you today. There are moments of indifference. It's awfully inconvenient to be a Christian. It's terribly difficult sometimes to be a Christian. To do the thing that honors Jesus more than would make my life easier makes it terribly inconvenient to be a Christian. And so I am tempted to be indifferent from time to time. But Christmas is that reset button for us. When we reconsider the fact that he is Messiah and we ponder what it is to worship him like these magi would do. So let's close with that. There's a, there's a fourth bonus truth in this text, and it's what it means to worship Jesus. Look at verse 11. Because the Magi are not indifferent and they're not hostile. In verse 11, it says, Entering the house, they, the Magi, saw the child with Mary his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. Do you remember when President Obama became president and he started traveling around the world in the early months of his presidency and he kept having this tendency to bow when he shook the hands of other foreign leaders. Do you all remember this? It's it's hilarious if you go watch, okay? Sometimes he did it a lot and sometimes he did it just a little, but whenever he shake hands, he would kind kind of bow. He stopped doing it after a while because he was getting so much grief. And man, his political opponents were just furious about that. Because when you bow, when you kind of you know, fall to the ground a little bit, what you're saying to someone else is, you are higher than I am. 
and we're Americans. We don't, you know, that, that was just, you know. You have great dignity when you, to the person you're bowing to, and I'm just a lowly person by comparison. When the Magi see a, a child, right, a tech, the technon is the Greek word here, with Mary, his mother. We don't know where Joseph is. They bow. But if you notice in verse 10, they're coming into this experience with joy, right? So they, they express their joyful worship through prostration, through bowing, and they also bring their gifts. They open up their treasures and they present them with gold and frankincense and myrrh. So this, is, this is all expressed through a bow and through a sacrifice. Now, the first, the, the, take a look at the gifts here. The first of these gifts is that these gifts are worthy of a king, right? It's, I find it absolutely fascinating there's no mention of these magi giving any gifts to any King Herod. You would think that they would have something for that guy, right? 34 years, built everything they walked on to get there. But they don't. And, they've been, and they have, in front of Herod, they're carrying their stuff that they're bringing for Jesus, So these gifts themselves are a clue that these magi really believed that they were in the presence of the Messiah, and so they gave to him as such. But the second thing is that these gifts are an expression, um, they're not just an expression of how valuable Jesus is and who he is, right? But it's an expression that, think about this, it's an expression that Jesus, the king of the Jews, was now the most valuable thing to them. We've got all this stuff. You are worthy of the highest honor because you are king. But really what's going on here, the most important thing that's going on here, for all the stuff that we have, we're giving it to you as a demonstration that you are the most valuable thing to us. You're not needy, king. You don't need these things to give yourself worth like Herod would. But we're giving these things to you as a demonstration that you are the most worthy thing to us. We haven't come here to get something from you You are a child, after all, even though you are the king child. But we're here to demonstrate through these gifts that you are the most valuable thing that there is. That's worship. That's worship. It's singing. It's prayer. It's giving. It's sacrificial living. It is a demonstration that he is king and that he is the most valuable thing that there is. Which is the application for the sermon, right? We don't want to be indifferent to Jesus. We don't want to be hostile to Jesus. We want to treasure Jesus for who he actually is, as demonstrated through our worship and our lives. He's the king of the Jews. Very different king. Everybody's king and a disruptive king to be worshipped. Let's pray together. Father, we are celebrating this reality this morning, and we are grateful for it. For you opening our eyes to that truth, that you are king of the Jews. Not just the Jews, but the Messiah for all nations, us included. So we pray that we would not be indifferent to this reality. We pray that we would not be hostile to this reality, but that we would worship you in light of this reality. And that you would do your great work in our lives, leading us to enjoy you and treasure you for who you are. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.